Prophets like Malachi and Isaiah pointed to the future and a coming king, a Messiah, one who would fully restore Israel and bring a new kingdom of peace. So the Jewish people waited and hoped, and God would not speak through the prophets again for 400 years. God goes silent. 400 years of silence. Wow. That's where we have arrived in the story today. And we thought we would get a chance to just really experience that together by sitting uh, for 400 minutes in silence. Uh, beginning now. No. No, we're not going to do that. Um, but we are going to at least acknowledge this, uh, this period in the story. Uh, if you are just joining us, it is a good time for you to be coming in as we journey. Uh, we're journeying all the way through the Bible. Last week we did. We, we got to the end of the Old Testament. And we've been using uh, this book called The Story to help us uh, on this journey. It is uh, essentially the Bible rearranged in a chronological fashion. It's written to read more like a novel. And we've come through now 21 chapters to get through the Old Testament. And uh, it's been, been some tough sledding, really, at, at some points, especially lately. I think all of us have this longing. If, we, if we've been uh, through the story, we have this longing for the New Testament. We need a change in the storyline, wondering when are we going to get out of this cycle of sin and brokenness that God's people seem to be stuck in. When is the story going to end? Okay. Well, the Old Testament part has come to an end. And even though in, in your Bible you can just flip the page and, and arrive at the next juncture of the story, you know, it didn't come that easily. It didn't come that quickly. Now, movies and books and plays, they all do that, right? They'll, they'll uh, conclude a scene, and then, you know, you turn the page, or you, you switch the set, and all of a sudden it's five years later, or 50 years later. Okay? And we do that, too, when we tell stories. We, uh, we sum up, we, we hit the high points, we, we jump ahead, and we are going to jump ahead. Next week, we'll launch into the New Testament, and it's going to be great. But this week, uh, we thought we would at least acknowledge this gap between the Testaments and, and kind of live there, in a way. 400 years. That's a long time. And it's a period often characterized by God's silence. That, that's how we refer to it. The Old Testament, right, is the story of God's involvement in history, His interaction with His people, this, is, uh, this nation Israel, whom He's called into being and charged to be a blessing to the entire world. God has communicated with them. That's what the Old Testament tells. And He's arranged for ways for them to communicate with Him. They have a relationship. And for hundreds of years, this relationship has played out. God, always faithful. His people, no, not, not so much. Rarely faithful by comparison. And so it plays out like this in the Old Testament. God providing in ways that a parent would, a parent dealing with a, a renegade child, that's kind of how God has, has tried to act. He's unleashed His whole bag of tricks. He's rescued. He's revealed. He's provided. He's given them life. He's given them land. He set them up with leaders, the, the judges and, and priests and the whole slew of kings and then prophet after prophet and it goes on like this until we arrive last week with the final words of the final prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi. And after all of that, after all that's been recorded, God goes silent. Absent. At least it seems. At least from the perspective of what we call Holy Scripture there is not a word from God spoken for a very long time. Has it ever felt like that from your perspective? Like God is silent or absent? 
Or has it seemed to you before like you once had a relationship with God and there was some communication and some interaction that played out in a certain way and life was okay. But now all of that is old. That's Old Testament. That, that's, that's gone. It's in the past. It happened back then. And, and now uh, it, it's just not the same. Life, life is not okay. The things that you used to know about God, the ways that you used to interact with God, it, it's just different now. And so now you're left wondering, is God still there? What is God doing? I think all of us have, have wondered that before. It seems like God is silent. That's how it feels from our perspective. Down here in, in our lower story, God ain't talking. God's not involved, or at least he's not involved in the ways that we think he should be involved. God's not doing the things that we think he should be doing. Have you been there before? Felt like that before? I mean, you just got to live long enough in this broken world, and you're destined to arrive at that place. Which is why uh, we're uh, honored today and blessed today to have some special guests with us. Uh, Some friends are here from New York, and they have a story to tell. They're going to share uh, their story with us. Uh, For theirs is a story that uh, perhaps not unlike many of ours in some ways. Uh, Theirs is a story filled with uh, uh, points of of questioning and and wondering and waiting on God. Some uh, some unexpected twists and turns, uh, events that they didn't predict, and some times of enduring God's silence. But I'm not going to tell. Uh, I'm not going to tell any more of their story. It's not my story to tell. We're going to bring them out here so you have a chance to meet them. And as they share about their journey with God, I, I trust that it will be an encouragement to us uh, wherever we're at in our journey with God as well. So let's bring them out right now. Jordan and Jessica, come on, come on out here and give them a warm mountain welcome. This is Jordan and Jessica. Hey guys. Welcome, welcome to the stage. Uh, we are really excited and thrilled and over the top ready for uh, your presentation, your story. We've been talking about it for weeks and really been amping it up and pumping it up a lot. So expectations are really high. We've hyped it up as much as we possibly can. And so I think no it's going to be great. No, no pressure. pressure. Yeah. No pressure. Okay. High Mountain. Yay, I love when people respond. Okay, (laughs) my name is Jessica, happy to be here with you. And I want to take you back to one of the happiest days of my life. It was May 15th, 2009. I was down the road in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and standing in a grove surrounded by 175 of my closest family members and friends. And I was overwhelmed with joy because I was about to marry an amazing man named Jerron. And uh, the sun was shining down on us. My lacy dress looked beautiful. And there was even a small family of deer that emerged from the trees and seemingly wanted to peek in and watch our wedding ceremony. It was very picturesque. So it was just all so amazing, and guest after guest came up to us afterwards and just told us about how moved they were, um, how they really believed that God had brought us together, and it was apparent that he had a great purpose for us together as a couple. So fast forward a couple of months, we were basking in the newlywed glow, and it was a random Thursday, and Jerron had gone out with a few friends riding on his motorcycle, and I was at home relaxing after a long work day. I had uh, started to drift off for a nap on the couch, and a little after 9 p.m., the doorbell rang. I wasn't sure who it was, and I was a little confused, so I jumped up, 
opened the door, and uh, it was the girlfriend of one of Jerron's close friends who he was out with that night. And she told me, hey, Jessica, Jerron's been in an accident. And so immediately, panic just shot through my body. But she said, no, 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 don't worry, he's fine. Um, there was an ambulance that came and took him to the hospital, but he's fine, and I'll take you there. So we get to the hospital, and we're met by one of his best friends who had been out with him that night. He was really shooken up, and um, he said, you know, Jerron's not in the, gr in the best shape. He's got a broken foot, and he was complaining about pain in his chest. Um, I was quickly introduced to one of the emergency nurses as his wife, and he said, okay, follow me back to the family room. So at this point, I'm a little confused as to why I need to go to a different room just to get an update on how Jerron's doing. But I follow him there. And I'm really concerned because this nurse is talking to me, and he's got like this really somber tone, and he keeps telling me, I just really need you to be strong right now. And I'm thinking, Okay, yeah, I mean, I'm strong, sure, um, but why do I need to be so strong about a broken foot? I mean, what's going on? And he said, well, we're doing the best that we can. And I said, doing the best you can to fix his broken foot? And he said, no, we're doing the best we can to keep him alive. So at that moment, I went to the family room, picked up the phone, called my mom, told her what had happened, and said, we need to pray. So there couple of minutes, we prayed, hung up, and I turned to all the friends who had been out with Jerron, who were in the room with me, and said, Jerron is going to be all right. And I really believe that, because in my mind, I'm saying, God, Jerron is so incredibly special. There is so much for him to do here on earth. He's got to make it. A few minutes go by, and the emergency nurse returns, this time with the doctor, and the doctor asks for me, and I raise my hand, and he says, Jerron had a lot of injuries, which caused a lot of internal bleeding. We drained the blood from his body, and we tried to give it back to him, but ultimately, his heart couldn't take it. I'm sorry. At that moment, I sprung up from my seat, saying, no, 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 no over and over and over again, really believing that if I said no enough, it wouldn't be true. I even asked him, I said, please just go back, go back. I know, please, there has to be something else you can do. But there was nothing else. So as I sat down and collected myself, I had to prepare myself to make the two most difficult calls I've ever made in my life. I had to call Jerron's parents, tell them the news, and my heart broke two more times. More people showed up at the hospital. Everything became an absolute blur. And eventually, later that night, it was time for me to go home. But I wasn't going home with Jerron. And I was there, left with this reality that my 29-year-old husband, who I'd only been married to for two and a half months, had died that I was a 26-year-old widow, and I was left wondering, now what? In August uh, 2009, I like to refer to those as my glory years. See, 
I had a really fast metabolism and a full head of hair, and I was <laughs> engaged to the woman of my dreams, uh, Danielle. And in early August, we were sitting around a friend's apartment, and he brought in his laptop with Facebook open to a young woman's page who had just lost her husband in a motorcycle accident. Now, all of my friends sat around, and we prayed for this woman because we couldn't imagine the type of grief that would hit a person for being married for two and a half months and lose your spouse like that. Danielle and I sat around and talked about how crazy we would go if anything uh, like that ever happened to either one of us. Later that month, Danielle and I got married in Baltimore. Uh, there was no deer. I don't think there's deer in Baltimore City. <laughs> and life was pretty great, actually. Uh, ten months, however, into our marriage, into the honeymoon phase, uh, something really weird started to happen uh, with Danielle's health. Uh, Danielle had never really been sick before, but for whatever reason, uh, she started waking up in the middle of the night, really nauseous. And at first we thought, hey, she might be pregnant. Uh, turns out she was not pregnant, so we took her to the doctor. And the doctor says, hey, don't worry, there's this chest virus thing that's going around. Uh, but don't worry, we're going to give her some medicine and she'll be fine in no time. A couple of days passed, a couple of weeks passed, and she still wasn't getting any better. So we said, you know what, let's just take her to the hospital and get this thing nipped in the bud. So we took her to the hospital, and as soon as she got there, they said, uh, don't be alarmed, but we have to admit her. Uh, we took a chest x-ray, and we found out that there's fluid around her heart. But hey, don't worry, don't worry, uh, she'll be fine in no time. We'll give her some steroids or some medicine. Uh, but day after day, while in the hospital, specialist after specialist, her condition got worse and worse and worse. It got so bad that by about the fifth day, they uh, determined that they had to do an emergency surgery to remove the fluid. Uh, Danielle had gotten so weak, they had to transfer her to the ICU, and she couldn't even stand on her own two feet. Nervous, uh, going into the, to the surgery, uh, we said, don't worry, uh, you know, the, it's only a small procedure. They have to make a small incision under her breast and uh, drain the fluid manually. It's about a 45-minute procedure, they said. So we go to the waiting room. Um, I sent my parents home. Danielle goes in for surgery, and uh, 45 minutes passed. Nobody came out. An hour passed, still no doctors. Hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, still nobody coming out of the surgery room. Finally, finally, about after three hours after they started the surgery, the surgeon comes out, and I knew something was wrong. The surgeon wouldn't even look me in my eyes. He was walking with his head down, and as he walked to me slowly, he looked me in my eyes. He says, Mr. Rice, take a seat. Now, these are the last words you ever, ever, ever want to hear after your loved one is in for surgery is to take a seat. And my knees started to buckle and my eyes locked in on his lips, waiting for him to say something, say anything uh, in that moment. He told me, Mr. Rice, don't worry, your wife is stable. But what I saw in her chest, I've never seen before. And instead of doing a small incision, we had to do a full open-heart surgery that turned into a life-saving procedure. The doctor uh, wasn't too optimistic about what was causing it, but still, we were hopeful. About five days later, I was asleep on a recliner chair in the waiting room. And as I was sleeping, uh, our cardiologist came up to me, and he said, uh, Mr. Rice, he woke me up in the morning, he said, Mr. Rice, I'm just going to say it and cut right to the chase. Uh, the worst news is possible, that was possible is actually true. Danielle has cancer. Not just any cancer, but an extremely rare and an extremely malignant type of cancer called primary cardiac angiosarcoma. It's so rare, there's only about 20 cases a year, and each case 
is fatal. Now, I did what anybody else would do upon hearing news that grim about some super rare cancer. I turned to the big G in the sky, Google, and I Googled everything <laughs> I can possibly find about primary cardiac angiosarcoma. And page after page, the news became more and more depressing. I ended up on like page seven of Google. And there's never anything good that far back, right? Like, don't ever go to the dentist on page seven of Google. Like, he'll have your teeth completely messed up. So we were still hopeful. Even though the prognosis was terrible, uh, we were still hopeful. We were saying that, listen, God can do anything. We believe that God can do absolutely anything, so we were hopeful. And even though the doctors determined that she probably only had a couple of weeks to live and she probably would never make it out of the hospital, we were still believing. And good things started to happen. Great things started to happen, actually. Her cancer started to go away. She went home. And we were really celebrating and optimistic. But as, as fast as the cancer went away, it came back with a vengeance. And on April 1st, the doctor, we sat in the doctor's office with tears in our eyes as the doctor told Danielle that she had about one month to live. Now, in April, I can uh, describe to you as what is most closely resembling a, an actual nightmare. As I sat in my apartment and day after day, I watched my newlywed bride wither away. Finally, on April 23rd, I took her to the hospital one last time, and as soon as we pulled up to the ER doors, her heart stopped. And I ran out, I grabbed her with both arms, and I rushed her into the ER, and I watched as the ER doctors cut off her clothes and tried to resuscitate her lifeless body. And they were able to resuscitate her a little bit, uh, and she, she woke back up for a little, while, a little while, but later that night, she died surrounded by family. And I remember that first car ride home, knowing that this was the last time that I would never, ever again walk into the apartment with Danielle, that I was now 29 years old and I was a, and I was a widower and wondering, now what? So in the days and the weeks after Jerron died, I was in utter shock. I mean, so much of my identity and my hopes for the future were tied to him being my life partner. And it seemed like, in an instant, all of my dreams had just been shattered. I didn't know who I was, and I really struggled with my identity. There were so many questions that I asked, mainly, God, how could this possibly be your will? Aren't you the one who brought us together? Didn't we do everything we were supposed to, building a God-centered marriage that would glorify you? What about all of his potential? What about all of the people who loved him? What about all of the people that he even wanted to introduce to you? I mean, I found myself literally living day to day, sometimes even minute to minute, because if I even tried to imagine life beyond those points, I was completely overwhelmed. There were just so many questions like, how can there ever be healing from this? How can I ever be restored? Is there supposed to be some kind of lesson here? I mean, I just, I don't understand how you could do this to me, God. And perhaps, most importantly, God, are you even there? Where are you now? In the days and uh, months leading up to Danielle dying from cancer, and certainly in the weeks, in the months after, man, I wish I can tell you guys that I was always full of faith. 
I wish I can tell you guys that I wasn't spending some days incredibly angry at everybody and especially at God. I wish I can tell you that I felt the presence of God always, uh, but the opposite was true. Although there were certainly days where I was hopeful and uh, had, had faith, there were also many days, many days uh, where God seemed so silent, so absent, that I doubted that me and God were even in the same zip code. And one thing that I think that suffering does is it makes us feel that God is nowhere near us. And, you know, suffering, Jessica and I don't certainly have the, the market cornered on suffering. It can come in a thousand different ways. It can be the loss of a job. It could be some miscarriages. It could be marital problems. It could be a thousand different things that make us feel that God is not with us. And Jessica and I came here today uh, to tell our stories, not to make you guys feel bad for us, right? If I wanted you to, make, if I wanted you to feel bad for me, I'd tell you that I was a Jets fan. And that usually, <laughs> that usually gets a great deal of sympathy. It's been a rough three decades. <laughs> but hopefully to legitimize uh, what we're going to say today, uh, there's, there's lessons that we learned about the character of God that, man, have blown us away and have surprised us in the darkest, most ridiculously crazy moments of our life. And one of these ways I learned about the character of God came to me one day when I was uh, with a friend in Brooklyn, and we were walking around near the Brooklyn Bridge, and as we were getting close to the bridge, there were a ton of police cars and ambulances and fire trucks racing toward the bridge. And I don't know what it was about that that attracted me to it, but I was drawn to it, so my friend and I walked over, and as soon as we got to the bridge, we saw a man dangling off the bridge with one sock on, uh, threatening to kill himself. And there were police behind him, uh, trying to negotiate with him. And every time uh, the cops would come closer, he would get closer and closer and closer to the edge. And the crowd would, would gasp with horror. And then finally, the man, as he looked all but certain to jump off the bridge, one of the cops jumped and grabbed him and rescued him to safety. The cop had him. And even though the man wanted to get out of his grasp, the cop would not let him go. And he pulled him to safety. Now, I don't know what it was exactly about that moment, but my body filled with chills and tears came to my eyes, and I remembered a scripture that I had read long ago from Philippians 3 and 12, and it says that, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. And in that moment, I realized so clearly that the character of God is that it is not us that is chasing after God, but it is God that has us firmly in the grip of his grace, and he will not let us go. Earlier, we sang a song by Matt Redmond saying, uh, never let go, and that is so, so, so true. And Jessica and I are living witnesses that God will never let us go, even, even especially when uh, life hits us the hardest, even when God is silent, even when it seems that God is absent, even when you don't want to be held on to anymore, God will hold us up. The Apostle Paul says it best in Romans 8, 38 and 39. He says, and I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our, our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, 
In my angriest days, I promised myself that I would never, ever, ever tell anybody about the goodness of God because, quite frankly, it was almost impossible for me to believe. But I can stand here today as a living witness to hopefully encourage you guys that in every situation, in every situation, whether your job is messed up, your marriage is messed up, you have health problems, that God will not let us go. So God really showed both me and Jordan in our separate lives that he was there with us. And he also used people around us to show us just how much he cared for us. In Jordan's case, it was the friends who would fly in from around the country just to crash on his couch and listen to him tell story, the same stories over and over again and act like they'd never heard it before. Um, he even had a friend who really hardly knew him but agreed to come with him to church on Sundays so that he wouldn't have to sit alone and be reminded that he was there without Danielle. In my case, I had friends who set up a Google calendar and people who I hadn't seen in years signed up to bring me meals each and every day. And it was amazing because they did it with the instructions that even if they brought the food to my house and I took it and said thank you and closed the door in their face, that that was perfectly okay and that they should give me my space when I needed it. I also had girlfriends who'd come over and they'd help me sort through Jerron's belongings and take me on trips just so that I could kind of escape in some way. And all of these different experiences really have made it so clear to us that when someone is suffering, there is no replacement for being physically present with them. We live in a day and age where it's very simple to send an email, to send a text message, to post something on a Facebook wall or tweet at somebody, but there's just no replacement for being physically there. We also know that a lot of people sometimes tend to stay away when someone's suffering, really usually because they feel like there's nothing I can do or I don't have the right thing to say. But the truth is, you don't have to have the right thing to say. The truth is, there is no right thing to say. There's few things that can be said in a moment like that. But there is just such a great opportunity to sit with someone and show them that God loves them. There's this great book by Philip Yancey. It's called, Where is God When It Hurts? And there's a quote in there that I love. I'm going to paraphrase a bit, but it says, I never questioned where God was when it hurt because I saw him in you and you and you. And that's so powerful, really, just because it's so very true. When someone is suffering, whether it's a friend or a coworker, a neighbor, church member, family, we have an opportunity to show God's unfailing love to them just by being with them, by making ourselves a little bit more uncomfortable for their sake. So we're grateful for how God loved us and showed himself to us in our times of suffering and how there were people around us who really helped love us back to life. And over time, you know, for me, I even found that while I could recognize that I experienced this really deep pain, that it really only hurt because I had been blessed with some, something so wonderful, that I had had this awesome love that so many people dream about and might never even experience in their lifetime. And so that was able to even shift my attitude towards gratefulness more and more. And I started to dream again 
we both started to dream again in our separate lives. For me, I started to travel, I started my own business, and I even thought a little bit about love and what that might look like. It was kind of hard, um, but I trusted that if it was for me, if I had a second chance at love, it would all be a part of God's plan, and that was a plan I was willing to wait for. Yeah, so I definitely made it on borrowed strength from a lot of friends uh, who came and spent time with me, and eventually I started to dream again about planting a church. Uh, before Danielle had gotten sick, we had actually made plans that I would leave my job as an attorney to go plant a church in Harlem, and having been devastated, I promised myself that I would never do that, but after about a year, I started to just feel this uh, this, this desire, and I couldn't, I couldn't push it away uh, to plant this church. I started to dream a little bit about that and started to make steps towards that. And um, I contacted the Orchard Group, a church planting organization, and they got me enrolled in uh, a residency. And I was speaking one day at a church down there, in uh, down, downtown Manhattan, and uh, one of my friends was in town from Maryland, and he came up to hear me preach, and it was my first time meeting his wife. And as soon as I met his wife, I said, hey, uh, you know, what do you do for a living, you know? And she says, well, I do marketing and communications like Jessica. I said, well, that's great. Marketing and communications is a noble field, but who in the world is Jessica? And she said, well, you have to know who Jessica is. She's, you know, her husband died like three years ago in a motorcycle accident. You guys have a lot of friends in common. It's, it's impossible that you guys don't know each other. So I remembered uh, that story kind of jogged my memory, and I went home, and I started searching Facebook, and I realized that somebody had sent me a link to Jessica's blog about a week after Danielle died. I didn't click on the link then because I didn't really care what anybody was saying, uh, but that day I clicked on it, and I read it, and the next step was to do what anybody else in my situation should do. I started to stalk her on Facebook. <laughs> She was living in D.C. at the time, and I was, I was, was living in, in New York at the time. And the next logical step is we, we started talking and, and sending messages back and forth. So the next step was to make up a reason to go to D.C., right? So I made up a reason to go to D.C. She bought it, and we, <laughs> had a, we, we sat down at a restaurant, and we talked, and we cried, and we listened to each other's stories, and we talked about Danielle, we talked about Jerron. And I knew that at that moment, something special was starting to happen. Yes, it's true. Something special was starting to happen, um, and it was a great time, even though it was based on deception. Um, we had such a good time that we decided to meet the next day where we sat and we talked for another six hours, just about life and everything that had kind of happened to us. And um, it was an amazing experience. Um, had I not experienced it myself, I would have said, I don't know if this is real, but after leaving that second meeting, verbally, all I could say was, thank you, God, because my mind was completely blown. I know I can speak for myself and Jordan, where both of us thought, yes, maybe one day there will be love, and I'll meet someone and move on with them, start a family, but both of us doubted whether or not we'd ever really be as excited about that person as we were in our first marriage. So to find this person that you're incredibly compatible with, and on top of all of that, it's like a demonstration of God's kindness in that there's this shared experience, an understanding of the pain that we'd been through, um, and we can understand that without any judgment, any insecurity, 
Um, and it was pretty clear very soon that this was the start of forever. So just 10 months after that first meeting, we got married. That was June 22nd, 2013. And so many people have come up to us and said, man, God is so good. Look at this. Look at what he has done. And we absolutely agree with that. But what we also know what we also talked about even on that first night when we sat down with, the, with each other is that God was good long before he brought us together. God was good in our darkest days, in our pain, because he never let us go. God was, is, and always is good. And we are so thankful to him for what he's done in our lives. And there's lots of good stuff going on, which Jordan is going to tell you more about. Yeah, so right now our life's mission and the one thing we are super passionate about is planting a church together in Harlem. And it's incredible how, how much pain is something that translates into every language. Whether you're black, white, Asian, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Puerto Rican, Dominican, or purple, uh, everybody experiences pain in some way and I've been blown away by how much uh, God has been able to use our story not necessarily in us meeting but our individual stories of the suffering that we endured to connect with people on a deep level and there are so many people that are hurting in Harlem and so many people that are hurting everywhere and God is doing an amazing thing so Harlem is an amazing place but it's it's also met with its challenges right uh, you don't just go there and plant a church like that uh, God has been with us and has been doing some amazing things but Harlem in and of itself is a place now that is going through a lot of transition we live on 121st Street and on one corner there's section 8 uh, housing and on the next corner there's luxury apartments uh, all on one street it's the place with the greatest, greatest economic diversity in Manhattan, and there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of good things happening, but there's also a lot of challenges. So uh, we've been blown away by what God has been doing since September. We've been gathering people, and we are just super excited to plant a church there and see the gospel go forward in Harlem. And uh, much as it says on the inscription of my wedding ring, uh, Ephesians 3.20, that we are believing God in our personal lives and also certainly in the church life that he is going to do exceedingly and abundantly much more than we ask and think. So we would love for you guys, Mountain, to pray with us, to pray for us as we, uh, as we go about that. And thank you guys so much for listening to our story. Good stuff, man. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you uh, again. Thank you for being here. Um, thank you for being church planters and for planting a church in a, in a place that needs the gospel. Uh, we are uh, on, we're excited about church planting, especially up here in the Northeast. And so we, we think church planters are heroes. And so we, we do want to pray for you. We want to be involved in what you're doing. And you're, you're actually just finding out this weekend, and the rest of us are, are finding out this weekend. We're going to have an opportunity to support what they're doing to help fund this project and, and get it launched. And so as part of our Easter offering uh, coming up in just a few weeks, we'll be, talking, we'll be talking more about that. You'll probably receive a letter in the mail that uh, describe what that's about. But a part of that offering will go to help support this new church plan. So we're really excited about that. Get a chance to, to join in and contribute to that. Um, and so just... We want to have an ongoing relationship. We're encouraged by your story. I think it helps uh, all of us kind of resonate with um, 
in our own story, you know, it's filled with, with joys and, and also with pains. And uh, in spite of that, God is working in it. I appreciate the way that you described God's goodness all the time. Whether we feel it or not, whether God seems silent or absent or not, God is good. And so thank you for reminding us of that. And also reminds us of just, just our need for God. Whether, whether life is great or whether life is hard, uh, sometimes we might trick ourselves into believing otherwise. But we need God. We need uh, Jesus Christ, and so thank you for making him the center of your lives and for pursuing the calling that he's placed on you. It's encouragement for all of us as we pursue our own calling right here in the place where God has put us. So God bless you. I do want to pray for you, and so we're going to do that right now. Um, All of us can kind of just join our our spirits in prayer, and I'll give voice to it as we uh, pray for Jordan and Jessica. Let's pray. God, thank you for, uh, for who you are and for, for what we get to celebrate when we gather here for worship. Uh, we give praise to you for your goodness, and uh, thank you for how we've seen it evident uh, all around us in our own lives and, and how we've seen it play out here in Jordan and Jessica's story. Uh, would, it, would, would your story continue to be written through them, in particular in Harlem and this new church plan opportunity? Would you call together a group of people and form a community there, a church that is full of the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and uh, submitting to the Lordship of Christ, that, that that would just make an impact in the, the greater neighborhood there in Harlem. Let your blessing be upon them and, and lead them ahead. I'm encouraged by their faithfulness to follow you uh, where you've called them. And so we look forward to uh, the fruit that is born because of their ministry, because of their faithfulness, and of course because of your faithfulness. So prepare the way, lead, lead them ahead, and uh, call into being a great church right there in Harlem. And thank you for uh, Jordan and Jessica's leadership in that. We uh, praise you for who you are and for your goodness. It's in your name we pray. Amen.